I just want to tell you, you all got brackets. I'm not talking about NCAA. I'm talking about in life. You got brackets. You got a way of deciding who's going to win what and what you value and what's truly important in your life. And so you, you make these brackets, you know, and, and through these brackets, it shows what you truly value, not what you say you value, what you truly value. It, it, it'll show what truly means something to you, you know. And I'm, I'm telling you, Dave Hammer, if, if, if University of Michigan was playing the Archangels of Heaven, Dave, uh, Dave still would have picked Michigan, I'm telling you. It, it shows what you value. It shows what you, what you choose to do. Everybody's got a bracket. Are you going to buy this or that? You put it on a bracket. Are you going to go to church this Sunday or not? You put it on a bracket. Or how are you going to raise your kids? What values? Is this a battle to fight? You, you put it on a bracket. You understand what I'm saying? We all got brackets. John realized this. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. He understood everybody. He understood bracketology long before anybody else came up with the word. He understood that you and I pit value and ideas against values and ideas. And we make choices based off of that. If you're going to understand chapter 2, you got to understand the whole flow of 1 John. 1 John was written by the Apostle John. He wrote the Gospel of John, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. He was probably the last apostle alive at this time. And it was written before his banishment to the island of Patmos. He's writing to a new generation of believers to reassure them in their faith and to counter false teaching. It was written as a letter to a non-specific Gentile congregation. Basically, it was to, to anybody who would want to read it. Probably more than any other book in the New Testament, it is a book written to you and I as believers in Jesus Christ. And John is a little random. I don't know if he's ADD or, or what, but, but he, he kind of takes a topic and then boom, he's on to another topic. And then boom, three or four verses later, he's on to another topic. And then boom, he's on to another topic. Then he comes back to this one and maybe revisits that one. He's over here. Then he comes back to here. And he's just, but through it, he just keeps weaving this wonderful basics of Christian faith. And there's three that John just hammers over and over and over again. He hammers this idea of true doctrine, of obedient living, and a fervent devotion. In chapter 2, he starts about what talking about what life looks like as a Christian, how Christians are supposed to act, walking in the light. It's kind of a carryover from chapter 1. Then he talks about the priority of love. He wraps up the end of the chapter with warnings and and exhortations, and then again hitting the point what it's like to be a child of God. And so you come to second or first John chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17. And here's what it says. And I'm reading out of the NIV because that's just the one I read from publicly, but I'm going to quote a lot from the King James because I, I think the, the words and the verbiage is a little more telling, a little more kind of um, familiar and forthright. It says, do not love the world or anything that's in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Boy, that's about as clear as you can be, isn't it? If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. 
In other words, if it comes to loving the world or loving the Father and you choose the world, you can't come to church and sing, oh, how I love Jesus, because your actions have spoken, your bracketology has spoken for you. Does that make sense? So he says, you love not the world nor anything in the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16 would say this. It says, for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful men, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and what he has done comes not from the Father, but from the world. Verse 17, the world and his desires pass away. But the man who does, the man who does, circle the word does. It's not just a choice. It's not just filling in a bracket. But it's going from the bracket of choice to doing it in your life. But the one that does the will of God abides forever. So we've got to unpack that a little bit because the language is a little different than kind of what we're used to. And we use words and concepts that we don't normally talk about. In verse 15, it talks about do not love the world. Now, that seems a little odd, doesn't it? You'd say John 3, 16 with me. For God so loved the world. Now we're seeing here going, well, wait a minute. You're not supposed to love the world? See, in the Greek, the context, a lot of times, there's a lot of different kind of layers of meanings of words, just like in the English language, and it's the context that decides the meaning. Number one, I love my wife, and I love a good steak. A little baked potato on the side, nice little salad, some fresh bread, hot butter, or butter melting on my hot bread. Woo! Who do I love more? Depends how hungry I am. Just kidding! Obviously, I love my wife more. But we use love, and it has various contexts. And so the word world has different contexts to it. It has the, the, the cosmos, the universe, the, the physical creation. For God so loved the world. And then it has the humanitarian part, the people. For God so loved humanity that he gave his only begotten son. But then there's another aspect of the world that's tied into the concept of flesh, which is a world system that is opposed to God. That's what you don't love. You love the people, you love creation, but you don't fall in love with the things that stand against God. We're all faced with those, aren't we? Right? We're all faced with those choices. Oh, maybe not now. I mean, this morning, I guarantee you're all going to make the right choice. I guarantee you, you're going to fill out the bracket exactly right. But it tells us this idea of love not the world. As preachers, we use the word worldliness. How many have heard that word before? Worldliness. You don't want to be worldly people. You don't want to be worldly believers. We use the word in the concept worldly. I love the quote you're about to, to see on the screen. And it, it really kind of, defi- I, I wish I was smart enough to give you this definition. I just found it and I'm going to read it to you. But it says, worldliness is not so much a matter of activity as it is of attitude. As it is of attitude. It is possible for a Christian to stay away from questionable amusements and doubtful places and still love the world for worldliness is a matter of the heart. Parents, you can bring your child to church 
every Sunday. But they, and they can do all the right things, and they can do all the, go be in all the right places. But I'm telling you, that doesn't guarantee that somewhere in the corner of their soul, they don't have a quiet love for the things of the world. Because it's an attitude. Paul would, or John would later explore that, that attitude, but he says it's an attitude. Matter of fact, just read the rest of it. To the extent that a Christian loves the world system and the things in it, he does not love the Father, straight out of verse 15. So it's an attitude. You say, well, how am I worldly? What do I do? Well, it's an attitude. And Paul, or John would just kind of enunciate these attitudes of worldliness. He talks about the lust of the flesh. And lust is an interesting word. The word lust talks about the idea of a desire of what's forbidden or an obsessive craving. It doesn't have to be something bad. John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 tells us. It's just this obsessive crazy. It's this fixation. You're obsessed with it and obsessed about it. And so John is saying, okay, you got this lust of the flesh team. And on this team, man, it's just kind of lower base sensuality. We always think of sex when we talk about lust of the flesh. And yes, the Bible does say in Matthew 5, I think it's verse 17, if a man looks on a woman and lusts after him, he's committed adultery in his heart. I understand that there is this obsession with sex in our culture. I get that. I understand that. But the word has broader implications than just the physical. It's just this, this, some of you, man, you are lusting after your career. Some of you are lusting after to be the most popular kid in school. Some of you are just lusting after that next big promotion. And it consumes you. It's all that you see. It's just this inordinate affection. It's this compulsive obsession. And desire and craving. Matthew 5, 16 says, But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So we talk about this idea of the lust of the, of the flesh. And it's possible, therefore, to lust after money, to lust after sex, to lust after power, to lust after pleasure, or nearly anything else on earth. Some of you, you lust after your children. Your obsession, your passion is your children. Some of you lust after your grandchildren. Your obsession, your passion is your grandchildren. If they were all as great as my grandchild, you would lust after it too. I'm just saying. (laughs) Here's the deal. God has given us good things. And Satan has inverted that thing. And many of us are lusting after things God never intended for us to lust after. Why in the world would you lust after money when God in heaven says one day you'll be walking on streets of gold inside gates of, of pearl inside walls of jasper on streets of gold? Why? Because we buy into that worldly system. That system that says get it all now. Get all the sex now. Get all the fun now. Get all the 
irresponsible. Get it all now. Get what you can. It is the lust of the flesh. I guarantee you every Christian in this room deals with it. In Genesis chapter 3, the devil in a perfect world with where there was perfect grace and Eve and Adam were perfect. This was his strategy. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. When Jesus took, or when God, when Satan took Jesus up on the Mount of Temptation in Matthew chapter 4, where he was tempted by Satan 40 days and 40 nights to compromise. And, and it's not just the choice, but it was the acting out the choice, the doing the will of God, the verse 17 thing. Then he used the same tactic, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And if it, Satan hadn't been any more creative in the 4,000, 6,000, 7,000 years from, from Adam and Eve to Jesus, he's not going to be very much more creative from the 2,000 and some years from Jesus to you and me. It's still lust of the flesh. As a matter of fact, you, you might as well, you, you can cover it and cloak it any way you want to. We all deal with it. But it's not only just the lust of the flesh, it's the lust of the eyes. You say, well, wait a minute, I thought the lust of the eyes was kind of the, the little sensual part, the little sexuality. I thought it was like, you know, let me tell you what lust of the eyes is. Lust of the eyes is, is, operates in a more refined way. In view here are the pleasures that gratify our mind and our sight. It, it is the sophisticated and intellectual pleasures. It, it, a modern philosopher would say it's materialism. It's getting the newest toy that makes you feel better about having it. It's not that having things are wrong, but it's that lusting, it's that compulsive, obsessive desire for it that makes it wrong. And so John was saying, not only is there this lust of the flesh, but man, you got the, the lust of the eyes. And we're just going to put a dollar sign right there. Because that's what it's all about. Here, it, it, it's about sensuality. You might as well just go XXI. That's what we associate it with. But man, on the lust of the eyes, man, it's all about the Benjamins. You want more. You want more so you can have more. See, the Romans were, and the Greeks at this time, they were so obsessed with this whole thing of, of, of living for entertainment activities that excited the eyes, that stimulated the senses. This is worth why the gladiators. I mean, to anybody, that sounds like a ridiculous thing to take your family and go watch. But that's what they did. Terry and I stood outside the Roland Coliseum, and it's just amazing what happened there. And it was just to stimulate the senses. Now, we all know that's what television does. We all know that's what the Internet does. We all know the, those, those stories. And, and I'm, 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 I'm simply here to tell you, maybe our prayer ought to be, turn away my eyes, Psalm 119.37, from looking at vanity. Maybe we need to pray, I will set no wicked thing or unclean thing before my eyes because we know this is a temptation because it's always the stain of wanting more, wanting more. Wanting more. They ask a, a mom and a dad who had seven children, seven boys, 
if they could trade their seven boys and be a billionaire overnight, would they trade their ornery, stinking boys for a billion dollars? You got to admit, some days that does sound like a good deal, you know what I'm saying? And they said, absolutely, positively not. They said, why? They said, because a billionaire always wants more and we don't want more, you know? This thing about the lust of the eyes, it's just the desire for more and more and more. You got to have more because somehow by you having more, it puffs up your own importance. It's not about the good hand of God blessing you and you using those blessings to bless others. It is all about the attention and the honor and the wow that you receive for what you have, for where you live, for what you drive, for your stock portfolio, for your bank account, for the lust of the eyes. I know you all battle it. And then you come down to the pride of life. That's the, that's the third thing. That's the third theme and team in your bracket. Boy, they got bright, sparkly uniforms, the, the pride of life. The boastful pride of life is exactly what it is. It is the ugliest sin I can think of. And it runs rampant in the church. We preach on pornography and hypocrisy and blah, 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 blah. And, and, and rarely do you hear anything of pride. The Greek word for pride is used to describe a braggart who's trying to impress people with his importance. People have always tried to outdo the other in their spending and their getting, where they've been, who they know. The boastful pride of life motivates much of what people do in our culture. It's the me, 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 me. And that's what it is. It is all about me. You know? Despicable me, but it's all about me. And what I get from what I have because I am who I am. And you have forgotten that you are what you are by the grace of God. And then in everybody's bracket, there's this issue of faith. Right? Remember verse 15? If you love the Father and love the world, you can't love the Father. Look at verse 16. For all that's in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Then you get to verse 17. And verse 17 talks about, and it says this. The world and its desires pass away. This dies. This dies. This dies. This is eternal. Can't take it with you. Can't take it with you. Can't take it with you. Always with you. See, I know what you're going to do. Because on the back of the bulletin is a bracket. I don't know what the top four temptations are in your life. But put faith in one of the four. Doesn't matter where you put faith. Doesn't matter where you put Jesus Christ. The battle's going to come down the same. The choice is going to come down the same. I know on Sunday morning, are you going to choose, are you going to choose Jesus or are you going to choose sex? Well, I know you're going to say, oh, give me Jesus. What about Friday night? And teenagers, you're at a house alone. Or it's Saturday and dads, you've worked hard all week. It's just been a crazy, stress-filled week and there's nobody in the house and there's that computer 
just waiting for you. See, I know what you'll say on Sunday. It's not, look at verse 6, 17 again. It's not the world and its desires pass away, but the man who chooses the will of God lives forever. Is that what it says? The man who chooses the will of God? Because you all will choose right. I guarantee you that at the end of the day in this room with me looking at you, with a Bible in front of you, you'll go, oh man, give me Jesus faith, baby. Give me Jesus, amen. I, I understand what you're going to choose. But I want to know what you're going to do when you've made your choice. It's not just the choosing. The choosing is the easy part, isn't it? Man, it was easy to choose Ohio State to go to the Final Four. I didn't choose Michigan. I had them losing in the first round. In fact, I didn't think they should make it at all. Wouldn't have hurt my feelings, none. I've had a lot of you ask me, say, are you going to pull for them now? <laughs> no. I will pull for the Big Ten. You see, I don't ever want to pull for pride. I'm reading a book right now with a group of guys. It's, the book is entitled Celebration of Discipline. And in it, it's got some great quotes. C.S. Lewis said, A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see what's above. Richard Foster had it right when he wrote in Celebration of Discipline. Listen to what he said. He said, Nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service. Nothing transforms the desire of the flesh like serving in hiddenness. The flesh, right here, the pride of life, whines against service, but screams against hidden service, that unrecognized service. It strains and it pulls for honor and recognition. It will devise subtle religiously acceptable means to call attention to the service that we've given in Jesus' name. If we stoutly refuse to give in to the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, you have to crucify it. And every time we crucify the flesh, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, we crucify our pride and our own arrogance. See, I know what you're going to choose. There's nobody going to choose. I'm going to choose pride. None of us are going to do that. But I tell you what you will do on the job, say maybe Tuesday or Wednesday, when the boss asks you to compromise your integrity for the good of the company, what are you going to choose? When somebody dangles a carrot, a promotion, or an opportunity in front of you, is that what you choose? No, it's the pride of life, dude. It's the lust of the flesh. It's the lust of the eyes. It's the pride of life stuff. What's your choice? And again, the choice is easy. Right? I mean, we would all go, some of you would go, okay, I'll take flesh. Probably most of us go, you know what, I'm going to take the Benjamins. I'm going to give me the money. I want to live good. I want to live high on the hog. Da, 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 da. And I want everybody in here to be millionaires. I really do. I want you to tithe off your millions. That's not the problem. It is the inordinate affection. It is the craving or the unnatural desire to get that which is God's to give. Well, we all know what's going to come in first down here. 
Right? And we're all going to say Sunday morning, oh man, give me Jesus, give me faith. You know, faith is the victory, victory, yes. And I would even say that between the dollars and faith, and that's a harder choice than what a lot of you will omit. Sitting in this room, sitting in this place, you're going to go, dude, it's faith. And you'll walk away feeling good that you made a decision and your bracket is filled out. It is not about the choice of filling the slot in the bracket. It is about John, 1 John 2.17. It is about doing the will of God. It is about doing the will of God. I am not into your choices, but I am into your doing. And I'm afraid that we are kind of sliding towards this end and the good talk stage and not in the doing stage. He that does the will of God abides forever. Didn't you love Jeremy's testimony, amen? Oh my goodness, you know why he could stand here today? Because he that does the will of God abides forever. Do you get it? It's not just about a choice. Oh, I understand a choice has got to be made so you can put into practice the action. But somewhere you've got to be a doer of the choice you make. So if you say, nope, I'm saying no to the lust of the flesh. I'm saying no to the lust of the eyes. If you realize you got this issue with pride, I'm dealing with it, and now I'm acting on it. You say, well, man, I'll do anything to defeat pride. All right, let's see. You show up here tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. I'll have a bucket full of cleaning supplies for you. We'll let you take every bathroom in the place. You say, well, Pastor, you know, my gifts and talents are a little above that. (laughs) No, they're not. You see, if you're not going to be faithful in little things, God is never going to trust you with a big thing. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know what the brackets of your life look like. I guarantee you I can trace your bracket's down to one of these, and I'm sure that's on it. I'm sure you're making right choices. But he that does the will of the Father abides forever. Are you doing it? I'm not impressed with the decision you will make today. I will be thoroughly impressed by the fact that you choose to do it every day. And day day after day and that you consistently make Jesus Christ the champion of your life and in this game he wins would you bow your heads would you close your eyes for Joseph